This forum is part of City Club's Health Innovation Series, sponsored by Medical Mutual. We are grateful for their generous support. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member. It's Thursday, August 26th, and you're joining us with our online forum. We're calling it Stronger Together, Collaboration Between Health Systems During COVID-19. Nobody can forget March 9th, 2020, when the first Ohioans tested positive for COVID-19. What we didn't know at the time was that our largest hospital systems were jointly setting up incident command centers and planning how to best tackle what we now know is the largest pandemic of the last hundred years. In those early days of COVID, reliable scientific consensus and critical epidemiologic information about the virus was often changing day by day. Despite having programs and protocols in place for this sort of challenge, the pandemic, taught, the pandemic caught many hospitals and healthcare providers off guard. Surveillance and modeling systems had to be launched, emergency zones mapped out, testing capacity expanded and streamlined, and critical PPE shortages needed to be addressed to keep frontline workers safe. For any hospital, this was a heavy lift. So what would happen if traditional competitors came together to tackle COVID-19 and ensure the well-being of our communities? And what are the lessons that were learned in this partnership that could be replicated as we endure COVID-19 waves and think about future public health emergencies? Our guest today recently released a white paper to discuss exactly this. Moderating our discussion is Marlene Harris-Taylor. She's the managing producer of the health team at IdeaStream Public Media. Now, in every, as in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. If you're on Twitter, tweet them at the City Club and we'll work them in. If you're not on Twitter and you have a question, just text it to 330-541-5794. The number again right there on the screen, 330-541-5794. Marlene Harris-Taylor. Thank you for moderating our forum today. I turn it over to you. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much. And I am pleased to introduce our guests who are with me today. Dr. Cliff McGarrion is the Chief Executive Officer of University Hospitals. Dr. McGarrion leads a comprehensive health system of 23 hospitals, more than 50 health centers and outpatient facilities, and over 200 physician offices located throughout 16 counties. Previously, Dr. McGarrion has served as president of University Hospitals Physicians Network and Systems Institutes. Prior to joining University Hospitals in 2002, Dr. McGarrion served as the on the physician staffs of the Lewis Stokes Cleveland Veteran Affairs Medical Center, Metro Health Medical Center, and Boston Medical Center. Also with us today is Dr. Tom Mihajevic, President and CEO of the Cleveland Clinic. In addition to the main campus in Cleveland, Dr. Mihajevic leads 18 hospitals and more than 190 outpatient locations, including facilities in Florida, Nevada, Toronto, Abu Dhabi, and London. He joined the Cleveland Clinic in 2004 as a cardio cardiothoracic surgeon. Previously, he served as CEO of Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. Dr. McGarrion and Dr. Mihalovich, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I'm thank so you, looking forward to this conversation with you. How often do you get to talk to the CEOs of the two big health systems in our area? <laughs> so I wanted to start off with, um, we're here to talk about how you came together to help keep us in uh, Northeast Ohio in particular safe during the COVID pandemic because because of this unique partnership to the between the two of you, I think, uh, this is just me speaking, that we in our area were probably better off than some er other areas of the country. And here we are and the pandemic is still going on. And I want to just veer away for a moment to talk about something that broke in the news today in our area. Metro Health System, which is the, the third big health system in our area, they announced this morning that they are going to be requiring their staff, their vendors, all their uh, employees to be fully vaccinated by October the 30th. Now, of course, there's going to be some exceptions in there, some religi religious and health exemptions, but pretty much they're mandating the vaccine now. And there are many people wondering if you're going to follow. Let's start with Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Mihalovich, what is Cleveland Clinic thinking about in this area? Well, Cleveland Clinic has been a strong proponent of vaccination for a really long time. Uh, we, together with our colleagues from Mayo Clinic, 
started a coordinated nationwide uh, campaign uh, in support of vaccination many, many months ago, and more than 60 uh, large integrated healthcare delivery systems across the United States have joined that effort. Uh, through those efforts that were uh, nationwide, the, our internal efforts have been equally uh, equally su uh, successful. Now, currently, close to 80 percent of our caregivers have already been vaccinated, and I have to say that with uh, the educational measures, making a vaccine available to all of our caregivers, uh, we have been able to keep the environment of care safe. We have not had a single outbreak of, uh, uh, of uh, COVID infection within on our premises among our caregivers and among our patients. So we continue to strongly encourage, strongly encourage all of our caregivers, a few remaining who are yet to be vaccinated to be vaccinated. That is the sense that we are having as of now. So there's no plans at all for Cleveland Clinic to require employees to be vaccinated, or are you still considering this day by day? Yeah, we're we're considering obviously the FDA approval. The FDA approval uh, of uh, the Pfizer vaccine is a really important step uh, that uh, uh, we salute and uh, uh, support. Uh, our position is as as I as I just described that. Okay, let's move to UH, Dr. McGarrian. Uh, what, what's the plans at UH in terms of thinking about mandating the vaccine for employees? Marlene, I, I think uh, I wanna echo some of the things that Tom said and make it very clear that UH is extremely strong in terms of its support of the vaccine. In fact, UH was the principal site in Northeast Ohio of actually doing the clinical trials in the Pfizer vaccine, which helped get along across the finish line. Um, I think the other thing that is is working in our minds and that of our employees is that it's only been about two and a half days now that one of the three vaccines that are available has finally achieved FDA approval. With that being said, I think we look forward to the other ones achieving approval. We strongly, strongly recommend uh, uh, the vaccines uh, for our patients. I'm, I'm sorry, for our, for our staff and obviously our patients as well. And we've been able to achieve uh, just below the 80th, 80% of now our employees. It's accelerating fairly rapidly now that Pfizer has received full FDA approval, and we think it'll continue to accelerate. So the notion of a mandate and whether or not a mandate, if one does not follow the mandate, what are the consequences is what we are dealing with right now. And, uh, and one of those options, which we are talking and thinking about is, a mandate, but with the notion that if one is not vaccinated and is still an employee, they will have uh, more aggressive testing on a more than once a week basis. These are the things that we're looking at, but also I would ask that these things are fluid in the sense that we just received FDA approval for one, only one of the available vaccines. And we look forward to working and looking forward to understanding how the cadence of the other ones being approved, but make no mistake, this is something that we strongly, strongly recommend. Okay, thank you for that. You know, I've been reading the comments from people who, who have uh, reacted to the Metro Health decision today. And many people are saying that Metro Health is going to lose employees over this decision today. Is that uh, factoring into your thinking here, uh, Dr. Mahajevic? Is that, are, are you concerned about losing staff if you mandate yeah. the vaccine? So I, I think before I answer that question, I think we have to understand what is our primary responsibility as a healthcare system. Our primary responsibility as the healthcare system is provide a safe environment for care, meaning that our patients are being cared for safely, and that we provide a safe environment for those who work in healthcare. And I do believe that with all the measures that we've been putting in place, vaccination, including masking, social distancing, hand washing, we've been able to accomplish that. And we've been able to keep the environment of care safe, even in the absence of full vaccination, even before vaccines actually came, came on board. So this is our primary responsibility. Uh, today, we're faced with an unprecedented workload and an unprecedented demand for our services. We have never been as busy as we are, and the, the shortage of healthcare workforce has never been as pronounced as it is today. So, obviously, losing healthcare workforce today, when all the beds are full, 
when all intensive care units are full, could essentially jeopardize the primary objective of our existence, so that is to provide the care for those who need it. So this is really a, a balance that we need to strike alongside with understanding that a few of those who were hesitant are oftentimes hesitant because for a no, number of different reasons, cultural, social, economical, educational, and we have seen a very significant impact and uh, uptick in the, in the uh, uh, a willingness to take a vaccine for the remaining few, as Cliff has just mentioned, with an approval of the FDA, FDA vaccine is essentially near there, nearly there. I mean, more than 80%, or 80% or close to uh, 80% are already being vaccinated. I'm very confident with the current strategies that we're going to get to the desired to the desired goal. Okay, so I think I heard you say that uh, losing employees is a concern. I think I heard that in there. Yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> We can. We, I mean, losing losing employees today at a time of the of the healthcare crisis would jeopardize our immediate our immediate uh, uh, need to provide uh, care for those for those in need. And this is uh, uh, this is something that is on everybody on everybody's mind. Uh, nursing shortage, in particular, has never been as pronounced today as uh, uh, as it is today. It's never been pronounced globally. And uh, every other position in healthcare is just exceedingly, exceedingly difficult to fill. And I'm sure that Cliff and our colleagues uh, at uh, UH feel feel the same pressure as we do. What about that, Mr. Dr. McGarry? And at UH is losing staff. Is that part of your hesitancy to just go ahead with a full mandate? Well, I think that has to be. I, I, I think it absolutely is, is something that enters into the consideration. Um, not only losing staff, which we've seen other places who have had a mandate with the remedy being termination, termination of your job. Um, but we also don't want to now add more and more unemployed people uh, to the corpus of our great city. Uh, and it could be a fairly significant. Now, remember, as Tom mentioned, we didn't have vaccines really until November, really December of 2020. We work from April, really March, all the way through nearly nine months we did aggressive contact tracing, just like the clinic did. We had almost zero evidence of a patient, this is before vaccines were even available, of a patient being affected in our premises by a staff member because our staff members are religious around masking, very, very aggressive masking. Um, and in certain circumstances, a 95 masking. So we don't believe that right now with the minimal amount of folks who haven't yet decided to pursue the vaccine, that we're putting our patients at danger. We just don't want to put our workforce in immediate danger of joblessness. Okay, well, thank you so much for addressing that, gentlemen. Let's talk about this white paper that we came together to talk about today. This was, again, it was the beginning of the pandemic and your two health systems came together in a unique way to work together. So first of all, let's talk about why is this unique? that hospital systems work together. That, that doesn't really happen, does it, Dr. Mahadjevic? It has really happened, and it is uh, relatively unique, we would like to believe. And uh, the reason why it's unique, because uh, very few healthcare systems that reside in the same, same geographical area actually speak to one another. They view one another uh, as competitors in a very traditional sense. When Cliff and I uh, got together for the first time, uh, if that was even before the pandemic, we quickly came to the realization and agreement that there are very many areas that we as large nonprofit healthcare systems can collaborate in, where we clearly do not compete, but where collaboration could uh, yield greater benefit for the communities that we ultimately serve. And with the onset of the pandemic, that realization uh, uh, became even more obvious. And that's really how our collaboration started. Okay. Well, let me ask Dr. McGarrian, what was the secret? Uh, you know, I'm, I've been calling it the secret sauce. Mm -hmm. What was in the secret sauce that made this happen? Well, Tom is right. And this is, and I don't want to, this, I don't know if this was serendipity or this was just good luck. But um, when I became, when I was named as CEO, uh, we got together for dinner. Um, we had a lot of commonalities in terms of the way we thought about things. And both of us said something at that dinner and I think it went something like this. Listen, we compete. We should compete. The, com the community wants us to compete. Each of us should be striving for better management of heart disease, 
for better management of cancer. We should each compete about providing the most efficient care. And in the end, the community wins. That's what they expect from us. That's really what competition is. But both of us also are responsible for spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on community benefit. Why don't we do many of these things together? So $1 from UH plus $1 from the Cleveland Clinic becomes three, not two. And we really set out a fairly aggressive agenda. And then, and then COVID hit. And that was set the stage for a very uh, seamless coordination between our two large systems that was recognized not only locally, but uh, statewide by the governor and nationally as a model of cooperation. But I do think it was that primary understanding and agreement between the both of us that we have an obligation with our, if you will, the things we don't compete upon to collaborate. And uh, that started it off. Okay. So then what, what what did the public see from this? What were some of the tangible benefits that came out of the two of you working together? I'll put that question out to both of you to answer. Why don't you start first? Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, your question is a very, very good one, Marlene. And I, I it literally, Tom and I had dinner in February of 2020 and then March, boom, there's, there's COVID. I think the first tangible evidence of a collaboration, which was really great news, was when we opened up joint drive-through testing centers together, both on our campus as well as, the, and actually a campus we share at the Walker Center. I think that set the stage. Uh, and then that allowed for us to, if you will, get our best experts together in infectious diseases, epidemiology, um, and put those together and really go to the state and the Ohio Department of Health and Governor DeWine, and he immediately picked the team between the two organizations to lead zone one, which was this part of the state, and then combine, if you will, expert teachers. Each of us had a little something different, but at the end of the day, if you put them, they're collaborative, and we had better geospatial locating, better ability to manage where populations were at risk for having hotspots of COVID. And then we worked into understanding how we could manage the deluge of patients that we were going to get that we didn't completely get, uh, but we still got a lot of patients. And then even as it related to vaccinations and, and how to work together on that, and then tons of research projects emanated from this collaboration. And we can go into it later, but there's literally at least six different areas of collaboration that emanated from the proof of principle being, and it first started one day, when the news was UH and the Cleveland Clinic offer the first drive-through testing programs uh, in Cleveland. So that was the first tangible sign. I remember that. And I'm sure many people remember that. We were people at that point, people were clamoring for testing. So that was like welcome news. Dr. Mihalovich, is there anything you wanted to add to the tangible benefits side of what people actually saw from this? Well, I think they're they're very tangible. Benefits everything from testing to the fact that uh, we jointly here in Northeast Ohio actually took care of uh, a disproportionately large number of severely ill patients with COVID who came from our state and from other states. And uh, we are very proud of the fact that we carried, uh, uh, carried that responsibility for our fellow Ohioans and uh, that would not have been possible without having an immensely coordinated effort. Our teams have essentially been in touch on a daily basis since the beginning of the pandemic. And the degree of co collaboration and coordination of, of the efforts that was needed to combat this pandemic cannot be underestimated. Uh, we've shared everything. We've shared knowledge. We shared best practices. We, we shared uh, uh, our, our uh, caregivers. Uh, among sides, uh, and uh, it, is, it has been so much good that has been created as uh, as a result of it. So we are very, very thankful, but also very proud of what our teams have accomplished. I want to pick up on something you just said that you said you shared caregivers between sites. Yes. You don't see that. How did that work? Did one hospital call the other and say, hey, we yeah. need a, little, a hand over here? How'd that work? That, that is true. I mean, it is not that complicated. Uh, it is just one phone call between two of us. And uh, we decided, for example, that uh, a, a drive-through testing center in Walker, location right between our campuses that we both share, was staffed by caregivers from both sides. 
uh, in, uh, in when there was a big uh, vaccination center and uh, uh, vaccination effort in the Wolstein Center. We both contributed our caregivers to that effort. It was uh, not pioneered by us, but it was staffed by Cleveland Clinic, UH, and others as well. And uh, that is really, uh, uh, actually, there are no obstacles to collaboration when it comes to common good. You know, I kind of put out there that I felt like our area was uniquely positioned in that because of this collaboration and the cooperation, perhaps things went smoother in our area than in some other areas of even the state and other parts of the country. Do you guys agree with my with my thesis, with my premise there, Dr. McGarry? You know, I think uh, both of us, and, and I also include Metro and our friends at St. Vincent, when we collaboratively messaged, whether it be in messaging in the New York Times or the Plain Dealer or on uh, and we said the same thing, that we need people to be tested and that we need people to be vaccinated. And we say it as a cacophony of voices, which we did together. But we started with our two organizations leading. I believe that we had better acceptance and less hesitancy and I that than, than many other parts of the country. And I do believe when the, when the history of this event, as it relates to various um, cities, are uh, written and is written, the collaboration between our organizations will be seen as a very positive sign which helped minimize some of the, if you will, very serious issues that are happening even today in other parts of this country. Yeah, because as you mentioned, Dr. Mahalovich, I th oh, actually, I think Dr. Magarian said this, that you know we were expecting, we kept hearing that there was gonna be this huge surge of patients we saw there were a lot of people who were sick, but Dr. Mahalovich, it wasn't as big a surge as we were expecting initially, correct? That, that, that is correct. I mean, we've been humbled and proven wrong so many times during this pandemic. Uh, 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 when it comes to our predictions, there was not a, almost a single instance where the uh, widely accepted predictions and forecasts about the course of this pandemic were actually right and accurate. So yes, the first wave of a pandemic that started on a, uh, you know, in Seattle on the West Coast and then shortly thereafter in the East Coast in New York, we thought that the same uh, similar wave of similar magnitude is going to hit uh, us here in Ohio. And fortunately, that did not materialize. As a consequence, our hospitals were prepared, uh, but they were empty. Uh, they were filled with caregivers, but not with patients. So there, that, is, there was a paradox that all of us had to deal with during early stages of pandemic. And you talked about this, this zone. Let's explain that a little bit for folks, because Ohio was broken into zones by state officials, and we were the northern zone. And that was more than northeast Ohio, wasn't it? Yep. We had a pretty swath along all the way to Pennsylvania and south. And uh, we... Uh, we really led it together. Bob Wiley from the clinic was chief and Sean Canone and Eric Beck from our team uh, worked as uh, co-leaders. And um, we were, I think, not only taking care of patients from other hospitals that, that couldn't manage it, but then, you know, we banded together to deal with vulnerable populations, particularly in congregate living environments, nursing homes, even prisons. We worked together to manage those folks and if necessary, transfer them to our hospitals because they didn't have anywhere to go. And um, I think that was what leadership, uh, that was very demonstrative leadership. And um, I think that, that that sort of cooperation is, is allowing us now to do things that we haven't dreamed of doing before. It seems to me that, you know, that initial dinner that you both talked about, there was some trust that was built up between the two of you which led to some trust between your institutions, which may make people wonder if, if either one of you decide to move on to another position and there's a new leader at Cleveland Clinic and there's a new leader at UH, will this cooperation go away or are there systems built in now that will keep this going? Well, I'm I'm convinced that uh, the cooperation would uh, continue continue to be there uh, the, the role of us as uh, people in, in the leadership positions in our respective organizations is to set the trend, to, send, to set the expectations. Uh, 
But now uh, this corporation has taken uh, very, very quickly, it's taken really deep roots in both of our organizations. So we have built a, uh, the bridges uh, uh, among our colleagues uh, that I think are long lasting. So even if someone else were in, in, our, in our current positions, I am uh, convinced and very, very hopeful that this collaboration will continue. You know, I'll, I'll say one thing, and I agree with Tom, but I, I do believe, at least in the short time that we've been together, that the tangible aspects of our collaboration, despite the benefit for the community, such as taking better care of our COVID patients and, for example, cooperating now on the opioid crisis, but other tangible aspects, actually the benefits of that, I believe now outweigh um, the option of letting it go. And so, for example, if you look at the Case Comprehensive Cancer Center, which is a collaborative of, of UH Cleveland Clinic, Case Western, which were together we received exceptional ratings and scores from the National Cancer Institute, and most likely it'll be refunded for another five to 10 years. That is tangible evidence. If you look at the work that we are doing and just received yesterday, notice of award for the Cleveland Brain and Alzheimer's Initiative, which is a clear partnership of neurologists from both of our organizations, which are deposited close to $16 million grant to help deal with Alzheimer's, which is very challenging, but that is a benefit. If you look even at things like our big translationer grant, which is a 60 to $65 million grant, which results from, again, partnership with the three organizations I mentioned, those benefits you can't, we can't live without. We have to have those. So my hope would be if you know, Tom and I were abducted by aliens and somebody has to parachute into our position tomorrow that they would look at the balance sheet and say, first of all, these guys now are friends with each other, these researchers, these scientists, these clinical researchers. And by the way, it benefits our city and the organization. We can't stop it. So we better become friends. You know, uh, we've talked about the unique nature of this and it doesn't happen everywhere. But for people in the general public, the reaction is sort of like, it's about time. You know? <laughs> I wish they had done this before. Do you all regret that it, it didn't happen before? Well, you know, we, we have to take a responsibility for the time that is current and that is under our influence. Of course, it would have been nice had we collaborated closer in a closer way before, but what we need to focus is on an opportunity that we can actually influence, and that is the future. So, yeah, the collaboration is really, really important. None of our organizations got, got diminished through collaboration. Each mm -hmm. of us actually, each of our reputations in the community nationally and internationally got enhanced through the collaboration. And that is, that is a true benefit of every collaboration, in particular in healthcare. This is not a zero sum game. Uh, this, yeah. is, this is just a, a living proof that uh, uh, organizations in such a noble profession in healthcare can do more good together than they can do in isolation. And the long list of recent accomplishments that uh, Cliff mentioned are there, but you know, UH and Cleveland Clinic are not alone in it. Our colleagues from Metro, our colleagues from St. Vincent, from VA, for pretty much every healthcare, larger healthcare organization in, in Northeast Ohio have been a part of this effort. I know, and, and, the, and the public is grateful for that. And they, and they love seeing these institutions work together because they say, hey, you know, they're all nonprofits. You know, some of our tax dollars are going to these institutions. So we love seeing them work together. Dr. McGarian, you mentioned the opioid crisis. How is this collaboration helping to attack this terrible scourge in our area and the state? One of the teams that Tom and I put together of the six various work streams as to work together beginning in really June of 2020 and working together in the opioid crisis. And the first step with both of our large organizations to work together on developing pathways whereby our patients are not given the chance maybe to get addicted to, to opioids and reduce the use of opioids in our operating rooms, in our anesthesia teams, and in our, and, and that was a very collaborative. And if you look at the amount of pills if you will, that have been decreased per person per year between this collaboration. It's incredible. The second, uh, so that means developing new pathways of care. The second can, is- can I, can I interrupt you for a moment? Cause that's yeah. a really interesting point. How were the pills decreased because of the collaboration? Because 
one of the things we worked on very carefully is, do we always have to use an opioid after a surgery or minor surgery, or could we use more local anesthetic, for example, if it's a knee surgery, and have them go home with a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory? So if you look at then the amount of pills that that doctor prescribed, that number is going to go down. And then number two, we realize at least some aspects of addiction to opioids start very innocently. When someone's having a medical procedure, they get opioids and a certain percentage of the population can get addicted with really just a whiff, if you will, of an opioid. So let's reduce those amount of opioids, number one. Number two, for those who are addicted, can we learn together and develop treatment programs together? Can we work with the county, which now has dollars, for example, from the opioid settlement and set up joint programs of dealing with de-escalation of opioid use that we use the best science together. These are the kind of programs that we're doing and we're very, very proud of them. Well, I'm going to put my reading glasses back on because we're at uh, about the halfway point where it's about time for us to take questions from people who want to get in on the conversation. Today at the City Club, we're listening to a forum talking about how the Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals came together to fight the COVID-19 pandemic. Now we're gonna turn the questions in a few minutes. Joining me here today is Tom Mihalovich, President and CEO of the Cleveland Clinic and Cliff McGarian, Chief Executive Officer at University Hospitals. If you have questions for our speakers, text them to 330-541 5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. That's at the City Club. And we're going to try to work in all the questions that are coming in. And I see we have one already. So people are anxious to get in on this. I'm going to go right to a question. It says, there has been some interesting news coverage about a lack of transparency in pricing, where sometimes the insured copay is actually more expensive than self-pay. Is it reasonable to imagine that your two institutions might collaborate to create better pricing models more transparency in pricing, et cetera, without, of course, violating rules around price fixing. Interesting question about, you know, uh, transparency on pricing. This is something that people have been talking about for years. How can we bring more transparency to pricing? Can we start with Cleveland Clinic? That's a very inter interesting question, Dr. Mihalovich. What do you think about that? Yes. Well, there was a, uh, uh, an ask, obviously, to... Uh, for, for greater transparency when it comes to pricing, and we're fully supportive of it. So Cleveland Clinic has participated actively in sharing our, our, our pricing information with the federal government when the mandate or the request came out. Uh, and uh, this is something that is in interest of both of our, our patients and obviously because of it, us, us as a provider. So there's absolutely no hesitancy uh, on our behalf to share to share our pricing. Is there something that's going on in the background? I know there's lots of work going in the background between the, your two institutions on this area specifically. Well, this is it is we have to understand that there are certain limitations when it comes to large healthcare organizations and 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 collaboration around pricing that we can that we cannot uh, uh, that, that we cannot. Uh, cross or, or or overcome. I think that is for our re for our listeners here. It is really important to understand that there are certain federal regu regulations uh, that we have to have to respect when it comes to individual pricing. Oh, I see. Okay, Dr. McGarian, can you talk about some of those complexity complexities that make it difficult for you to work together on on this particular topic? Yeah, I, I think that we don't have any difficulty working together on the how. In other words, the federal government has asked us to have transparency with regards to cost and prices, not only just for Medicare, but for literally every insurance product, which can be literally in the hundreds. So that is a challenge. We're working through that. In terms of the how, we have communicated uh, with our colleagues at the clinic and our team in, in finance uh, and, 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 and payer relations on how actually to do what the federal government wants. But then for us to actually get together and set prices, that's that's illegal. Uh, we, we, we can't do that. But if you think about it, if this is ultimately achieved, um, then those prices will be transparent. Uh, 
um, and and that will, if you will, um, allow uh, the consumers to have all the information uh, that they need. But um, the how we can collaborate on how to do it electronically, what computer programs to use, et cetera, because it is complicated. Uh, but in terms of actually setting prices, uh, that is that's we can't do that. Okay, I'm going to give the phone the texting number again in case other folks have questions for you. That number is three three zero five four one five seven nine four. That's three three zero five four one five seven nine four. Or you can tweet at the City Club. So we've talked about. Um, attacking these huge problems of the pandemic and also uh, the opioid crisis. You know, there's so many other areas in Northeast Ohio in particular that are huge and systemic and have been ongoing for years that there's opportunities for cooperation. Things like lead poisoning in homes and um, the infant mortality rate in our area, just, it's getting better. We know that the infant mortality rate is getting better because of the hard work of many, many folks, but the infant mortality rate in the African community, African-American community continues to pers the persist the levels. Are there any, is there any work going on in the background to attack some of these other huge systemic issues? Dr. McGarry, would you like to take that one first? Sure. You know, I, I think that one of the goals of our working together was to create a pathway for job creation where we have joint training programs where people who go through these training programs for entry-level jobs for example our version is called step up to uh but then they're offered jobs almost guaranteed jobs if they complete the training at uh or the cleveland clinic that's been highly successful and uh, our team uh, has been working very closely with the, the cleveland clinics team and creating these opportunities as it relates to social determinants of health infant mortality, you know, we have uh, been collaborating on what's called First Year Cleveland along with Metro. And uh, specifically, uh, there is a tri tri trio, if you will, of leaders, uh, Selena Cunahan for University Hospitals, Amy Stevens from Cleveland Clinic, and uh, Kim Green from Metro, who work together and they're executive members of really how to create the necessary services for pregnant women in the city of Cleveland to reduce some of the issues that leads to infant mortality or maternal mortality. That includes food insecurity, that includes centering classes, that includes a collaborative that um, we think is uh, so important that, that this will bring more monies from grants, whether they be ODH grants or federal grants into the city. We're beginning to bend those curves, certainly in the Huff neighborhood, um, and, uh, but it is a collaborative between all our organizations. Dr. Mihaljevic, let me ask you, you know, it, this this is a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart because I'm leading a project at IdeaStream around racism as a public health crisis and what we are doing as a community to address this because it's been declared by so many of our institutions at Cleveland Clinic and through this collaborative. Is there work going on to look at bias in the healthcare system, to look at um, health inequities in our community overall. Yeah, the work is the work is ongoing and this is uh, the, the, the real effort that addresses a complex complex issue of health inequities in, in our neighborhoods that we are very much very much aware of and working very hard on. And as uh, Cliff mentioned, this is a joint effort. This is not just a Cleveland Clinic effort, it's a broader societal effort. All of us are, so to say, focused on those on those topics. At Cleveland Clinic, we have we're trying to uh, uh, simplify our approach through uh, through uh, several important initiatives, and that is we use uh, a, a brief statement: hire, heal, and invest into our communities to address the public public healthcare issues, social determinants in health, and poor healthcare outcomes are best influenced by one major intervention, and that is to provide jobs in, the, in our communities. It has been shown over and over and over again that people who have jobs that are family sustaining typically enjoy better health, better lives, and ultimately the entire, the entire community becomes healthier through that. So, UH and Cleveland Clinic are the largest employers in this metropolitan area to not only just to keep the jobs, but also to uh, 
make sure that our wages and the benefits of family sustaining is the singular most important contribution to the health of our communities. You know, I, I, I'll go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, and then no, go ahead. Healing, healing efforts obviously goes to the fact that uh, Marlene, you know that our our healthcare workforce also has to continue to evolve and change. Has to start to look more like the communities that we serve, and a composition of our workforce needs to. Uh, mirror the composition. It comes to uh, infant mortality. We're now obviously getting deep into our communities with the population and the family health initiatives and educating very many caregivers from those communities to help uh, young women in, uh, uh, who are pregnant or about to become pregnant or young mothers actually to provide Good care, good care of their babies, and then ultimately we continue to invest into our communities so that we can address some of these social determinants of health. In Cleveland Clinic's example, here in our Fairfax neighborhood, uh, we'll soon be opening the, the first supermarket in a really long time in the area that used to be a food desert. And obviously, lack of availability of, of uh, good food leads to so many problems. That is going to be combined with a with affordable uh, affordable housing. And this is just one, one example of how we're investing into our community. So hire, heal, and invest, three-pronged approach to address uh, uh, racial and social inequities that unfortunately continue to be present. But we are bending, bending the curve. There is absolutely no doubt about it that uh, we are seeing the fruits of this labor and the fruits of our investment. I'm glad to hear that, that we're bending the curve. That's some positive news. I'm going to go back to questions from people who are watching the forum today. Um, this question is, uh, it's really interesting. It says, in this week's New Yorker, Dr. Gawande, and I hope I pronounced that right. Yes, you did. Oh, okay. <laughs> Reports how Costa Rica, a poor country that uh, that's poorer than the U.S., but it's achieved greater life expectancy at less cost by integrating public health and medical care systems with an emphasis on the far the former on the former and a robust primary care system. So, what policies would you advocate with the new mayor that's coming in to improve health for all Clevelanders? Kind of complex question there, no. <laughs> but in the end, it kind of came back to how would you work with the new mayor and the new administration to try to improve health in Cleveland? Well, first, maybe I can I can take this one on because Atul Gawande uh, and I are friends. We were trained together at the Brigham and Women's Hospital way back, and uh, uh, he's an exceptionally good writer. Many of your listeners know about his work, and he actually sent me a copy of this article before it was published in New Yorker. Uh, saying, okay, so what do you think about this? <laughs> and and uh, it's interesting because both our organizations are actually doing not exactly the same, but pretty similar. The core of this article speaks about the public healthcare systems when a when an organized, well-organized network of providers that go deeper into communities and become an integral part of the communities uh, can provide better care at a lower cost, but be more proactive by making sure that the members of the community are taking good care of their chronic diseases, that they're participating in the prevention programs. You know, this is essentially what we are trying to do. We are trying to change the healthcare from the series of episodes, meaning the series of uh, visits to, the, to, the, to physicians or providers to more of a continuum to a continuous relationship between the providers and our patients so that we can keep our patients healthy and well. And we're always gonna be there for them when they become ill, but we would like to prevent them from becoming, becoming ill in, infrequently, uh, too frequently, I'm sorry. Yeah, but I think, you know, part of the question, Dr. McGarrian is about, you know, you, you have this country that's poor than the U.S., but they're doing better with life expectancy. And as we know, life expectancy has been going down in the US. So, you know, there, I guess the core of the question is, is there something we need to switch up in the way we're delivering our healthcare to improve the life expectancy of our citizens here? You know, I, I think that um, what is clear in Costa Rica, and I think we're trying to do here, certainly in Cleveland, is make primary care a bigger part of the life of a, of a person and not to be used solely when you feel sick or afraid of being sick. 
that it's built into your life on a regular basis. We know, for example, if somebody doesn't see their primary doctor every year, the chance of something bad happening goes up logarithmically. What we're trying to do, and I know the clinic is as well, is starting to equip our primary care hubs to provide not just the doctor's visit, but dietetics, psychological behavioral health, uh, even dental health, so that these become, if you will, mini urgent care centers, but also become not daunting like an urgent care or an ER, but somewhere that people want to go because they also improve their wellness and their, their health and their longevity as a result of that. So I think the United States needs to do a better job of evolving primary care to becoming part of one's life as opposed to something you go to begrudgingly um, or when you're in trouble. And I think that that's what we are both trying to do with the explosion. We both grown our primary care networks dramatically. We have close to 450 primary care providers at over 200 sites now, and we are building them to be equipped to be able to manage not only the problems, but to help people live better, healthier lives. I know that was something that was a goal of the Affordable Care Act, the ACA. So did the ACA help to move that forward to get more people in the primary care and get more of a focus on preventative medicine? I think it did. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, the Affordable Care Act, for example, in Ohio was allowed literally close to a million people becoming insured who weren't insured. And now they have, and they're not fearful of bills that they can't pay. They have insurance either or through the exchange, commercial insurance that they never had before. These people now, what we have to do is convince them to make the primary care touch points not something that is done begrudgingly, but is something that becomes part of their life because it is actually going to help them live better, longer, and happier. There was so much talk back then about people using ERs as their primary doctor. Has that changed at all, Dr. Mahajevich? It is, it is changing uh, uh, a lot because our primary care networks have grown and have prevented uh, many of unnecessary emergency room visits. But we're still far from, far from being perfect. I think even our large primary care networks that we are currently having are, are not sufficient. And we both of our organizations continue to grow them. Okay. We have another question. This is, are you able to share more about the areas you mentioned where you can, should be, are collaborating and where you are not in competition, where they, where it can benefit the community? Are there some other areas that we haven't talked about where you can work together and benefit the community that doesn't violate any rules or government regulations? <laughs> <laughs> This is all above board that we're not violating any rules, but, <laughs> but we, do, we do meet actually our executive teams uh, from both organizations meet, meet on a regular basis, you know, once, once a month, once every other month, depending, depending upon a need. And there are several areas, and I'll touch upon a few, and I'm sure Cliff, uh, Cliff can expand further. But uh, aside from opioid, but opioid epidemic, which is still going on, it has just been suppressed by COVID pandemic. That is one area that is really uh, we're focused on uh, our hiring and uh, uh, hiring efforts in the community in particular and job creation in the community is the area that we are very, very passionate about. We are also very passionate about our supply chain and how can we include the diversity of our suppliers for both of our healthcare systems, which has a direct influence on uh, uh, on the jobs in in the region. We are also obviously collaborating a lot in the areas of research, and that that has been very fruitful. And uh, Cleavage mentioned just the recent tremendous successes of our organization that came through that collaboration. And then we also even collaborate in recruitment. You know, we have a very many healthcare professionals who are moving uh, here to Ohio to be a part of one of our organizations. Often, often they are. They're married to other healthcare professionals who are also seeking a job. So uh, it is in our mutual interest to, to bring and keep the best talent uh, in Ohio. And that is how we collaborate as well. That's interesting because you talked so much earlier. You know, you mentioned that nursing shortage. So that that's a way to help keep a pipeline of people coming here to address that shortage. Absolutely. You know, if we have, for example, a, 
person we're recruiting for a particular type of um, medical uh, service and there's a spouse or a partner and we just don't have a position for that partner, we will call the leadership at the Cleveland Clinic and they will robustly search for a position so that ultimately the region will get the benefit of these two new uh, people coming to Cleveland. I think the second area that we, that I don't know if it's very clear, but how much collaboration was needed for the five organizations, uh, us, the clinic, Case Western, uh, Metro, um, as well as Cleveland State, um, to respond to a challenge by Jobs Ohio to go after a multi, multi hundred million dollar uh, grant, which the principal job of that grant, which was awarded to us, all five, um, but first of all, it took collaboration to do that as a group. It took people leaving their egos at the table. Um, and then once we got the grant, the goal is to improve job creation, um, tech development, business development over the next 10 years. That is a huge, huge undertaking that the five organizations um, have done. And that is constantly uh, being worked on in, in the background. So, you know, it, it, we could go on. We could we're talk about, for example, sharing services, whether it be central sterile supply, whether it be collaborating and how we do our laundry. So what is that central sterile supply? Well, keeping instruments clean, for example. You have to have mechanisms and um, machines to keep surgical instruments clean every single day. But And obviously, it's an expense to both organizations. But imagine if you did it together, we could get economies of scale. That's something that we're looking at right now. That's simply an example, Marlene, of ways that we collaborate even in business. Um, and, uh, and, and it's just every day there's new ideas. Well, you know, you mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned the digital space. We have a question from Twitter about that. So the question says, great collaboration between university hospitals and Cleveland Clinic. Hope they'll discuss the ways they're already collaborating around digital inclusion. Well, I'll start and I'll let Tommy finish. I mean, we, we, um, we clearly are both very aggressively helping donate PCs to the community. And both of us um, uh, trying to deal with the, uh, the broadband problem. Um, we, for example, are allowing uh, broadband antennas to be put up on all our buildings, of course, free of charge. And I'll turn it over to Tom because I know they're doing some uh, wonderful things as well. That, that is true. So uh, everything from sharing our, our PCs with the neighborhood to putting a broadband and in access to our immediate communities to broadband is really important part of digital inclusion. Looking a bit down the road, uh, uh, the effort uh, that relates to the to bringing the largest investments in the history of Northeast Ohio from the state of Ohio and Jobs Ohio uh, will be the parts of those monies are going to be used, uh, a large proportion of them, to build a new center for global and emerging pathogens, which will have a very strong digital and computational component. Uh, at the Cleveland Clinic, IBM has decided to join our uh, our effort, and they will be uh, contributing a tremendous amount of human resources and financial resources to build an unprecedented uh, digital research infrastructure, including the first dedicated quantum computer for biomedical sciences in the world, which will be located here in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, this is going to be a resource that is going to be here that will create a lot of jobs in our region and a lot of career opportunities for, uh, for our fellow citizens who are interested in, in, in jobs in digital, in digital space. We're very excited about it because we do believe that uh, the healthcare was to a large extent be transformed through the incorporate, through, in, through incorporating the, this digital capability into day-to-day -day, uh, delivery of care. Well, I have to tell you, being in public media, I know what it's like to go to funders to ask for money. <laughs> and so I know how important it is to, for there to be partnerships involved in that and two or three people coming to ask for that funding versus competing for that funding against each other. So it's, it's good to know you're doing that. What are some of the other um, research projects that you're possibly looking at as part of this collaboration that you can come together and go after research dollars to bring back to our community? Well, there, there, there are many going on at any given time. I mentioned the Alzheimer's work. 
We just had a jointly funded large uh, cardiac uh, grant between uh, PIs or principal investigators that got funded between both of our organizations. Um, we are looking at uh, training grants, what are called T32 training grants that can exist, for example, in GI between both Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals, where young trainees would uh, do not only clinical work at both places, but then research work. That's a very new area of potential collaboration that can be very mutually beneficial. So um, Marlene, every day there's a new, you know, once you set the stage, if you will, for collaboration and cooperation, then ideas pop up um, without me and Tom even hearing about it, knowing about it. And, and in fact, that's how it should be. Um, it, and and, um, and they now they know they have the green light, so they go and they apply for grants. As you know, the NIH, which is one of the principal, most prestigious endower of grants for research, um, has become harder and harder to get grants. We believe that by using the best minds from both places, we increase our chances of getting those grants. And I think the Alzheimer's and the cardiac grant are just two examples. Clearly, the Case Conference Cancer Center, which is going up for renewal, the fact that we're doing it together, um, we will do great. Uh, but if you try to do those alone, sometimes you don't do as well. Now, so how can this partnership that we said is somewhat unique, how can it be replicated in other places? What can other cities, other institutions learn from what the two of you did together to make this happen other places? Well, we believe, uh, I believe that I can speak for both of us. Uh, we believe that these areas of collaboration that we just described, COVID pandemic, opioid dependency, uh, the uh, supply chain synergies, uh, job creation, and so on, those are the areas of potential collaboration that could be easily replicated in every part of the United States. Uh, because all of us are living in the same world, uh, all of us are struggling with the same challenges, and uh, every area has the same opportunity to, to collaborate and get better. So uh, we do believe that this is uh, something that can be and should be, and should be replicated uh, throughout our, our country. You know, I think, Marlene, that the um, <clears throat> the fact that we put the time together to put out a white paper, that white paper was disseminated through one of our larger consulting agencies that consult hospitals, that called the advisory board. It became front and center there. And then Tom and myself were asked to give the keynote speech uh, to the High Hospitals Association annual meeting just about this topic. The word is getting out there. The fact of the matter is, you know, both Tom and I came from the Boston environment. Uh, now, by force, they're putting hospitals to make them now uh, collaborate. But historically, that has not been the way things were done, not only in Boston, but other cities. But the bottom line is this, is that we are all not, well, not all, but mo most of the most regal and iconic hospitals are nonprofit hospitals. They have a duty to give back to the community. They have also a duty to compete, and they can and they should, as it relates to getting better care, new, new, new treatments, that's better for people but they don't have to compete on putting their money together, their minds together, their ingenuity together on helping, whether it be fixing problems with access to primary care or job creation or maternal health, baby health, social determinants of health. These are things that the great hospitals should work together. And we're hoping that people will take this cue around the nation. You know, we're just about out of time and I see Dan popping up. So I just wanted to give you an opportunity to say, we've talked about a lot of things here today. What's the bottom line thing you want the community to take away from our conversation about what came from you working together? I just spoke too much, so I'll have Tom speak. <laughs> well, I, I, hope, I hope that our communities also see the benefit of our joint effort uh, we do deeply care about the communities in which we reside and which we serve. And we also do have a shared belief that we can do a lot of common good when we come together and work together. So uh, I hope this is showing up, but I would also like to say that this is just the beginning. Uh, we do believe that uh, the deepening of our collaboration uh, will bring even more benefit to those we serve.
Thank you so much. I'm going to turn it over to Dan to wrap it up for us. Thank Marlene, you thank so you much. so much. And, and Drs. Mihalovich and, and Majarian, thank you so much for your work and for joining us today. It's deeply appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to thank you, all of our viewers and listeners, for joining us as well. We've been talking with Tom Mihalovich, President and CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, and Cliff Majarian, his counterpart at University Hospitals. Our forum today is part of our Health Innovation Series, which is sponsored by Medical Mutual. We thank them for their support. All of our City Club virtual forums, these online forums, are presented for free thanks to generous support from Bank of America, PNC, and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. You can join them in supporting City Club's mission of creating conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive by texting the word DONATE to 216-616-CLUB. That's 216-616-CLUB or 2582 to make your gift. Or you can also go online and become a member. Tomorrow, August 27th, we will be in person at the City Club with uh, Kevin Nowak, uh, Executive Director of CHN Housing Partners, and DJ Valentine, Vice President of State CRA Mortgage Sales Manager and a State CRA Sales Manager with Huntington National Bank. We're going to be talking about affordable home ownership and how that has the power to transform lives. Connecting back to this forum, we might say that housing is a form of healthcare. This forum tomorrow is sold out, but we invite you to join us at our live stream at cityclub.org. Also on September 3rd, join us for author Jamal Green. He's a professor of law at Columbia Law School and author of the book, How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. He will talk about how our country's approach to rights is dividing the country and how we might be able to build a better system of justice. Tickets are still available. You can find out more about that forum and all of our upcoming forums at cityclub.org. I'm Dan Malthrop. Thank you so much for joining us. Our forum is now adjourned. <laughs>